Some of you may not know me, or you think that I am relatively new, but this is actually my second time around here at Wellspring. I first uh, came to here uh, when I was only a year and a half old with my mom and my four siblings. My father had been called to be the senior pastor here, which he was for most of the next 24 years. So really, this is where I grew up. And I have so many amazing memories of the people here, of how I was loved and I was cared for. I, also as the pastor's kid, and a nosy one at that, got a front row seat to a lot of comings and goings of church life. Banfield, as it was called then, was considered a flagship church in the denomination, not just because of its size, but because it was always on the front line of change, of facing the difficult issues of the day. I remember a sermon my dad used to preach where he said, do you want to be a history writer or a history maker? It was his desire to be a history maker and not just go along with the status quo. Some of the things that they used to deal with here may not seem like that big of a deal to some of us today, but that was not always the case. It was hard and it was messy, but they chose to be in the middle of it anyways. They led the way, as opposed to just doing what was easy and what had always been done. It's what made this church special. This was the place you came to church when you did not fit in anywhere else. It was the one with all the buses out front that picked up people young and old to come to Sunday school and to church. This was the first church to host a root cellar in the 1970s, where the youth decorated the basement up like a club. And then every night during March break, a Christian rock band played. Now that seems harmless, right? But then it was scandalous, and that type of music was not played in the church. During the hippie era, we had the Jesus people come in their bare feet, sporting bell-bottom jeans, going right up to the front, and with their tambourines <laughs> in this little conservative church, sitting alongside the men in suits and the women in their hats and white gloves. They faced issues of classism, as we welcome kids from the poorest areas in the, in the neighborhood to attend. We faced racism. While some refused to work alongside those with different colored skin. There was a lot of pushback when women began to take leadership in the church, as some believed it went against scripture. Yet they still moved forward. I remember many times my dad getting complaints about the youth sitting in the back section of the church in their sloppy clothes and talking through the whole service. And I'm sure that I was one of them. <laughs> and he would just say, let them be. I'm just really glad they're here. Being a welcoming and inclusive church was not easy or simple. It was hard and it was messy, but they didn't back down and just to play nice so that everyone got along. They made the hard choice to face it anyways. They were history makers. Sometimes they handled it well, and other times, not so much. But they remained in it anyways. This was the church my Aunt Dorothy Bell 
many of you came to. Many of you may know her as she was a strong teacher and a leader in this church. In fact, she was actually the first woman elder at Banfield. She arrived in 1971 with her 14-year-old son, Doug. Everyone knew something was different about Doug. He was a very cute young boy. Even at an early age, he didn't have the same interests as other boys. He wasn't into sports. He liked to try on his mom's jewelry, and he liked to play house. So by the time he arrived at this church, he was quite used to being teased by the other kids, and he heard the quiet whispers of the adults. He knew they imitated him behind his back, how he moved when he walked, or how he dangled his hands. He pretended he didn't notice, so when they arrived at Banfield, he never did attend the youth group. But Doug found his, his place creatively. He was a phenomenal musician. He did all his academic piano levels, and he played so easily by ear. Everybody loved to hear Doug play, and he often did so in this church as well. But the concern began to rise, because back then, no one understood sexual orientation. It was considered a preference or a lifestyle. No one was really worried about what Doug was up to, but rather that it, it was that he was feminine. What was Doug's big offense? He was a man who behaved like a woman. People believed at that time that this meant he was more susceptible to outside influences and was at risk at getting mixed up with the wrong crowd. So everyone loved on Doug. They were kind to him since he just needed to be protected from himself. People loved Doug, and they loved Dorothy. This was a welcoming church. And my dad was at the head of that line trying to help Doug. After all, this was his nephew, and he loved him. He made sure he got counseling, and later on, when my dad joined Barry Moore Ministries as a traveling speaker, Doug came along as the pianist on the team, and he was very popular. But I still remember the jokes back then, how everyone would tease Doug, since he pulled a suitcase with wheels. No real men ever had wheels on their suitcases. <laughs> I think we could probably raise our hand, and pretty much most of us do that now, don't we? Of course, it was all said in good fun, and Doug took it all in stride after all. They were only teasing. So he thought, if this is what you need to deal with to be accepted, then maybe it's okay. Until it wasn't. Eventually, Doug couldn't hide who he was. He was even went so far as to be engaged to a young woman, but he had to break that off. He had done everything he could to change, but this wasn't just a preference for him, like he was told. This was his identity, and it's who he was at his core. It was after this that everything changed. He wasn't hiding anymore, so he couldn't be in ministry. He couldn't continue to share his amazing gifts and talents with others. 
After all, this was a Christian organization. And this is when the real hurt and anger began to show. As he realized that all that love and acceptance was really conditional upon him keeping it all in and not living out who he was. People still loved him anyways. But behind all that, there was still something wrong with you. So he stopped coming to church, and his anger increased. I remember one night, well after midnight, the phone rang, and Doug called our home. I picked up the extension because, of course, as teenagers, you want to know what's happening late at night. But I quickly, quickly realized this was a conversation that I should not have been privy to. Doug was crying. He was yelling at my dad, wanting to know what was so wrong with him that everyone else couldn't love him as he is. I quickly hung up the phone. Then there was Aunt Dorothy. She didn't know what to do because the Bible was clear, wasn't it? But she knew the goodness in her son, and she loved him deeply. But she also knew the gossip. I remember the people discussing the whys of how someone became gay. A big one back then, not just in church, but in the entire culture at large, was Doug had an absent father, so he didn't have a strong male role model in the house. And on top of that, he lived with his mom and his grandmother, two strong women. How could he not be gay by being dominated by them? It was called the smother mother theory. And don't they always blame the mothers? Aunt Dorothy had to quietly bear her shame. From the 1930s until 1972, homosexuality was considered a mental illness. In fact, even in pastoral counseling journals up to the 19, late 1960s, there was no thought about it being a moral issue. Pastors were advised to provide comfort to these young men and ensure they see a psychiatrist, but no discussion about it being a sin. Then in 1946, with the creation of the RSV, homosexuality was first used in any Bible translation. Two Greek words were put together and translated into one new word, homosexuality. I mean, I'm sure some of you are wondering, so what do those two words mean then? <laughs> and I get that. But unfortunately, there's not time to go into that in this one message. So we as a church will be looking at those passages and translations in greater depth at a later date in order to do justice to the complex history of those words. But what I can say, that it's not an understatement to say that no one expected the kind of fallout that was to come from that one poor translation decision. In fact, only three people were on record of raising concern. Two Canadians, <laughs> a pastor and a seminary student. And the third was a British Anglican priest named David Sherwin Bailey. And in 1955, he wrote in his commentary, and I quote, Unless this error is corrected and the true meaning of this passage is explained, the wide circulation of this version and the reputation which its general merit has for it 
may only serve to encourage intolerance and perpetrate a great social justice, thus seriously discrediting the Christian church. How prophetic he was. Eventually, 10 years later, the word homosexuality was changed in the RSV, but not before the NIV, in the New Living Bible, used the translation work from the RSV teams to create their own versions. The Living Bible, better known in those days as The Way, became the Bible given out by Billy Graham Association, Young Life, Youth with a Mission, selling more than 40 million copies. The word homosexuality was forever instilled in time, and the new way of reading scripture became the basis of many sermons and many Bible studies. Even a new doctrine had to be created up, created because until that time, there was no theology around it. And many are surprised to learn there's only six passages in the Bible that are used today against homosexuality. And throughout history, the interpretation of these passages were quite different than they are today. And in 1972, homosexuality was removed as a mental illness from the DSM when it was finally proved there was no evidence for that original hypothesis. So where did that leave the church? If it was no longer a mental illness, what should our response be? Enter the moral majority and the religious right. However, they weren't just concerned about men, but the breakdown of patriarchy itself Feminine was on, feminism was on the rise, so the doctrine of biblical manhood and womanhood was developed. We need more real men and real women in this world. You may remember, some of you of my age and more, um, Anita Bryant, who was famous from the Florida orange juice commercials. With her perky voice and her bright smile, she said, a day without Florida orange juice is like a day without sunshine. Well, she became the poster girl for the anthem to save our children and led parents down a fearful path of believing the gays were out to recruit our kids. It was a very scary time, and I remember it well as I was a very young, impressionable child myself. Then the AIDS crisis hit the world. We understand some of that with the fear of COVID, but it was nothing like the fear of HIV. For then, it was a death sentence. Early on, no one knew how you got it. Could it be from the air as a droplet? What if I hugged someone? There was no treatment or cure, just a painful death. You know what the sad truth is? Quite quickly, people started to relax when they realized, hey, I'm not gay. Not out of blood transfusion. I'm okay. Just keep away from anyone you deem as a potential risk. If you were suspected as gay or had a gay family member or friend, people wouldn't hug you or share a meal with you. Definitely, your kids weren't playing with theirs. Finding a cure was slow, and there wasn't the public will to change. In fact, Ronald Reagan never even mentioned this epidemic until 20,000 young Americans had died and another 35,000 were infected. After all, it was the gay disease. 
Jerry Falwell proclaimed, there would never be a cure for AIDS. And Romans 1, 26 and 27 proved that. This was God's punishment for their wicked practices. That was the era of the 1970s and 80s. What it meant to be a Christian was changing. And this is the world that Doug and Aunt Dorothy found themselves in. How one word can change so much. Doug eventually left Toronto with his partner and moved to Vancouver. It was clear he was never going to be fully accepted as he was here, but there was something much more painful than that. Doug had AIDS. Aunt Dorothy, in her shame and her desire just to protect her son, told very few people about his illness. Instead, she decided to just say he had cancer. There was one woman outside the family whom she confided in, another mother from a long-standing long family at this church whose son was gay, and they comforted one another. She eventually went out west to lovingly care for Doug in his final days, and her heart broke for her son as she said her final goodbyes. I was a young woman at the time, and not really sure what to make of it. I just remember feeling that something wasn't right. We all did. My dad struggled a lot with the love for his nephew and his sister and with what, what he had been taught, not just by the church, but what the larger culture at the time had told us was true. He did his very best with what he knew. Everybody did. They thought it was a preference be changed, healed even. They thought if they loved him enough and protected him, it would be fine. But it wasn't. So in the end, Dad knew he had failed Doug, and he didn't know what to do with that. To be fair, it wasn't just the average person, it wasn't the average person's worldview at the time. Things seemed so obvious to us now, 40 years later, but it just really wasn't in their minds. But a shift did happen in my family. My sister Marlene went to work in the AIDS clinic in London as a social worker. That was a controversial job at the time. My dad was so incredibly proud of Marlene, and he wanted everyone to know what his daughter was up to. And Aunt Dorothy, who previously didn't want anyone to know her son's diagnosis, went with Marlene as she spoke to various groups, sharing her perspective as a mother of a son who died of AIDS. That was a big step for her, and she knew she needed to stand up for her son and others like him. So that was the early 90s. 10, 20, 30 years have gone by. What has changed? So... For me, the memory of what happened to Doug, it stayed with me, and I knew I owed it to him and to others to do better. So I started with, you know, we just need to love people. But what do I do with scripture? At the time, I just thought same-sex relationships, well, they may not be how it was originally intended, and it may not be God's best, but we live in a broken world, and God knows that. So I will leave the convicting up to God and just do what I'm called to do, which is to love. 
It was my way of smoothing it over, not to overtly judge. But in reality, it just went underground, or so we thought. Because below all that love was a belief that this was still a sin, and God needed to address it with them. We felt better because we weren't overtly judging like others were, but it didn't change anything for those in the LGBTQ plus community. Because for them, I was gaslighting. Experience had showed them that when you show up at church, you know, everyone is so kind and loving. But then the bait and switch happens. In reality, what is being said, you are welcome here as you are, as long as you change and follow our ways and our rules. When any pushback came, we could just say, they are on our rules. We're just following what the Bible says. Now that's a conversation ender. But I remained in that space for a long time, loving, supporting uh, LGBTQ plus rights and freedoms, but still unable to reconcile this with scripture. And I guess I was okay with that. Until one day, my youngest daughter came to me and let me know that they were lesbians. They were interested in other women and always had been. We laid in the bedroom together and we hugged. And I told them how much I loved them. They felt relieved and thought I responded well. But I knew that inside, I felt like I'd just been kicked in the stomach. I felt sick. I knew what it meant being a Christian. I knew what judgment was coming. I was afraid. I wanted to shut the conversation down and find a way around this. And maybe I just didn't want to have to explain it to anyone. All of a sudden, the idea, though, of just loving them through it felt flat. I knew all they wanted was to be fully, fully accepted for who they are, not in spite of it. I recently asked Emma, how that feels when people say, I just have a different view than you, but I love you anyways. They said, it feels like saying, I said I love you. Isn't that enough? Like I should be thankful and just accept the crumbs I'm being given. You feel worthless and you'd rather someone not say they love you. Because in truth, it does not feel like love, but rather like judgment on you and for your entire identity. I don't feel safe. I've been thinking a lot about that phrase that Wellspring is known for. We receive all whom Christ receives. And it's a good one. Hey, it was my dad who came up with it. <laughs> and it was progressive for the time. But I would challenge us to take that one step further. It's no longer about who we receive, but about whether or not they feel safe here. No matter how welcoming we are, and I know we are, people have a long memory. And for many, they're still waiting for that bait and switch. The time when they realize they can come to church, but once they want to truly participate, 
they find out their status is just a little bit lower than everyone else. They aren't really fully accepted or seen as whole. After my conversation with Emma, I realized that my stance wasn't enough. It was a cop-out for me. It made me feel better. Like, it let me off the responsibility, any responsibility, but it left the LGBTQ plus community feeling unsafe. I recently read a quote from someone who was deeply hurt by the church. I'm not sure the origin of it, but it goes like this. There's no hate quite like Christian love. Ouch. That hurts. In reality, unless we look at what the scripture really teaches, teaches us, what is below the surface, we are only pushing things under the rug. And quite honestly, we are just watering it down or ignoring what we actually believe the Bible says. And I don't think that's good for anyone. Trust me, I am not wanting us to ignore scripture. I want to address it head on. It's because I have the high, there's a high value that I place on it. And that's why it matters. And that's why I'm challenging us to truly look at what it says and why. I think we owe it to those who've gone before us in this church who had to hide their identity. To those who are here now who may or not, may not feel safe enough to share who they are with us and for those who are to come. Statistically, the LGB, LGB people are seven times more likely to attempt suicide. And in Canada, one in three transgender people have attempted suicide in this past year alone. And I know that breaks the hearts of everyone here, as it does God's. I have not spent any time today doing the deep dive into scripture. And I could have, and I would love to do that moving forward, but for this morning, I decided today to focus on my experience and the history of what I knew about one man from this church and the pain he suffered. This church's legacy is one of leadership, not to worry about what others are doing or what they think, but to do the messy work. And that is what Jesus has called us to. As I come to a close today, I often think back to that sermon of my dad's that I mentioned in the beginning that has never left me. Do you want to be a history writer or a history maker? I want to be a history 